Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Today on Investment Uncut, we are delighted to be joined by Chief Investment Officer of Legal and General Investment Management, Sonia Loud. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Sonia. Before we kick into the main conversation, I think it would be helpful if you give the listeners an idea of what your role involves and perhaps the path that you sort of trod to get to the role that you've got currently. Absolutely. So my title is Chief Investment Officer of Legal and General Investment Management. And as such, I'm overseeing the entire investment team at Legal and General Investment Management that covers all products from passive index to active fixed income, multi-asset solutions. So really the whole range. And it's great because it gives you really a holistic view on what we're doing for our clients and obviously allows us as well to really look at a client problem or a client objective from the most holistic standpoint. So much to get into there. But before we get into the proper conversation, Sonia, why don't you tell us something we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? Ah, the secrets. Yes, you will probably not have expected that I decided at one point that I would like to leave school early to become a professional horse rider. It's a, quite a different tree. But in hindsight, I'm quite glad that my mum at least insisted for me to finish school and then everything else is history. Wow. How different life would have been. <laughs> I don't know if there's some segue there about overcoming obstacles and jumping over things. <laughs> no, no. No, Dan, no. <laughs> Fine, carry on. Good try there. <laughs> I mean, Sonia, you oversee, I guess, broadly over a trillion pounds of, of assets, I guess, as the largest asset manager in the UK. So, I mean, what are some of the sort of investing frameworks and principles that you found worked over time or that you bring to that role? We have seen a dramatic change over the recent history in the way we think about this. And this is obviously related to the increasing focus and the acceleration we have seen with regards to responsible investing, integration of ESG factors, and how we as large capital intermediaries have to think about our responsibility to do this for our clients. And that, I think, is an absolutely fascinating and interesting development. And that means as well that bringing all your bright investment professions together is really important because what you are doing is you're retooling your analysts and investors with a broader way of thinking about a company far more holistically. So we actually have merged our credit and equity research teams to start with a holistic company view rather than with a security level analysis. It is a broader set of criteria that you have to assess. You're looking at a company from a stakeholder-based concept. You think about externalities. You think about how a company is set up, how sustainable the business model is, in order to come to a conclusion whether the company is fit for the future because there is a lot of change that every company needs to address. If you think about the oil and gas industry, you think about a company like BP and their recently announced plan of their net zero ambition. It's our job to assess and understand whether this is a realistic plan, whether it will allow BP to reach that goal. In fact, whether hence the market has been pricing it correctly and whether it might be an interesting investment opportunity. So lots going on that I think is incredibly exciting, but incredibly challenging as well from an investment standpoint. 
And I suppose being such a large business, so firstly, you've got buying power, so you can make a difference. But I guess secondly, you've got a whole load of different people potentially looking at the same company with slightly different lenses. And I guess you therefore introduce the challenge of having a consistent voice, if you like, so that you can really use that power to the greatest effect. Yeah, absolutely. Because we feel it is really making sure we bring the brightest brains together and making sure we can look at a company or even an economic development from all angles. We have to understand that the market backdrop is so complex today that really making sense of it and taking the right investment decisions on behalf of our clients is a very different setup and really requires a more integrated investment approach. There must have been a few challenges along the way there as well, because what you described is quite a big mindset shift in how some people would have operated. So talk us through how that's, there must have been some people who've objected to being sort of told to look at things in a different way, or at least been more resistant to that sort of change, right? How's that panned out? Yeah, I think within Elgin, to be honest, this probably was less of an issue because, as you know, legal in general in itself has the vision of inclusive capitalism. So the understanding of the importance of responsible investing is really part and parcel of who we are as a group. And I think as such, you've had bigger buy-in across everyone from the beginning. And I think everybody understands as well the challenges we are facing and the complexity of the task. And as such, it's been actually a relatively straightforward proposition. And I think we get so much great feedback on proposition and the setup we have put in place that by now we really have buy-in from everyone. Because it's very clear as well, if you are speaking to clients, it is part of every client conversation. How can you help me, dear Elgin, in addressing what is a big change in regulatory requirements, a big change in the market backdrop? How can we bring the two together to achieve the objectives that we have? And I guess typically when we think about responsible investment, and particularly when we're speaking to those that perhaps haven't thought about it as much as others, it often starts with a conversation about equity investing and the rights that you get alongside shares and that sort of thing, where I guess there's a very obvious link to making a difference. Can you sort of talk about how you've seen that migrate across to other asset classes with the sort of holistic viewpoint that you've got? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that this might not necessarily change that if you think about engagement and you're raising a very important point because engagement has to be at the core of what we're doing because we're here not only to change and retool our analysts, we're here as well to make a positive change. We all know that change is necessary and we have the responsibility as large capital intermediaries to affect positive change. That means you need people who understand what this change should look like, but you need obviously the equity investing as well to have that level of engagement. But what we should not forget is that what we are talking about in terms of the relevance of ESG factors and the financial materiality that is attached to it obviously will affect bond pricing as well. It will affect the spread that we're looking at because in this journey towards more sustainable business models, there will be relative winners. There will be companies that are better equipped than others. And as such, having the integrated approach across engagement and then obviously the understanding of how different asset classes will price it, I think is the way we we thought about this to make this the most holistic approach possible. It really ties in. We were talking off air before we just started, Sonia, about the piece in The Economist on asset management last week. We'll link to it in the show notes. And two of the big themes they identified, not surprisingly, were the rise of passive investment, but also asset managers moving from being capital allocators to more being focused on stewardship. Your business, I guess, is very involved in both of those sort of themes. So how would you reflect on stewardship in passive investing, I guess? And how do you think about that? 
it's clearly a big issue and a big point that is still being raised with the question mark, can you as a large passive manager think about investment stewardship the same way as you would if you were active manager? And I think as the industry thinks about this, we need to find an answer because we will not move away from having large parts of our money being managed in a passive way because it is efficient, it's cost effective, and it allows our clients to achieve their objectives. At the same time, we need to find a process that allows us to engage on behalf of all of our clients, whether they're invested in our index funds or whether they're invested in our passive mandates. And this is why having a fully integrated process where the active stewardship approach is part and parcel of the whole investment process, and you can demonstrate that this is done on behalf of all shareholders, allows you to at least claim that you are doing this in the context of all the assets you are managing. But it's very clear as well that the effectiveness of your engagement comes down to your research team as well. Having the combination of active and passive to my mind, probably allows you to most effectively combine the two and be clear in your way and your approach. But it's clearly still an evolution where we are finding the best ways forward. But inaction clearly is not an option here because as large asset managers, you need to make sure you pick up that responsibility of engagement. As you were saying that, I was sort of reflecting on the sort of phrase, actions speak louder than words. And of course, as, a, as an entirely passive business, you don't necessarily have that threat of being able to sell the holdings, but the element of active gives you that opportunity. Absolutely. Although I would always say we have to understand that we have to see ourselves as part of the journey as well. I think we have to understand that divestment is a very crude expression of a view, which is very effective, but will not change necessarily for the better. It's the balance between the two. Engagement should focus on effecting positive change with clearly the discipline, if there is no change, you have to divest. So the combination of the two, I think, is the way how we would describe it and what clearly is the approach we have put in the center of our investment process. Again, off air, you reflected on the sort of oil and gas sector, particularly in the US market, and the fact that if everyone divested from that small proportion of businesses that are in that area, we're not quite ready for them to disappear yet, which I thought was a really interesting point. We have spent a lot of time trying to understand the necessary changes in the global energy system on our journey towards a Paris-aligned environment. And it's very clear there will be dramatic shifts, but it will not be without oil and gas companies. Much reduced, but we still need a bit of oil and gas to get us through that period. And that means that we want to engage with companies that have already obviously captured the necessity to have a plan to change the asset mix and to be ready with a sustainable business model to embark on that journey. And it's our task as the asset manager to understand whether this is a sustainable plan and whether, in fact, we believe what we are seeing is the right journey and the right course of action. And just reflecting on the role of passive management, I guess, a lot of people might say, well, too much of equity markets goes passive, then potentially you've got issues with holding corporate boards and management accountable. You've got issues with allocation of capital, those sort of things. How would you reflect on that? I suppose you're an active and passive manager. I mean, do you see some sense in that or do you think passive has got a lot further it can go? There's a lot more they can do because you can still express your voting rights. If you're a shareholder, you still have the right to vote and you can express views on big topics around corporate governance, equality, you know, social aspects. There's no excuse really in doing this and being an active owner. I think where 
for passive, it might be more difficult if you go back to this principle of engagement and being part of the journey, because obviously there, then you need a team that is in a position to, for one, have the knowledge and the understanding, and then obviously engage on an ongoing basis with the company to effect positive change. But I think there we have to differentiate between really affecting your rights as a shareholder and the voting rights in particular, and the ongoing engagement to effect positive change. So I suppose the sort of, I guess, rise of responsible investment and stewardship and clearly so much focus on it, and particularly this year, but it's a trend that we've seen over over a number of years. Are there any other sort of trends of investing that you could reflect on in, in your career so far? Yeah, I think 2020 really has shown us understanding long-term structural change is incredibly important. We've established a macro thematic approach quite a while ago, and it's big themes that we are all aware of. They're not groundbreaking in and of themselves, but understanding how they will affect the way we invest is incredibly important and clearly has accelerated to an extent throughout 2020 that having had these embedded in your process clearly helped you to understand how the pandemic might have accelerated some Technology is the obvious topic, right? I mean, we've talked for so long around the technology disruption, the way how automation and technology will change the way we work, that change the way we communicate. But guess what? 2020 has seen such a dramatic acceleration. And I tell you, if you'd asked me at the beginning of the year if I can see my entire investment team working remotely, I probably would have smiled and gently acknowledged that maybe not. And here we are. We could. And you you see that level of empowerment that came with it is probably here to say, hence understanding the long-term structural themes that will not go away, even if we have a more normalized environment, will help us understand where the opportunities arise going forward from what is still a very uncertain environment. And consumer behaviors in particular, and the way they might change on the back of this, will give us real insights on potential opportunities. And I think, hence, this is really something that I feel will probably emerge even stronger, the understanding of how themes can allow you to understand the market dynamics. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because, like you say, a lot of these themes are kind of not new news in a way. They're the same things we've been talking about for a long time. But the difficulty, I guess, is always judging how much they're going to move forward in any given period of time, even 10 years. It's, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because you can so easily overestimate the impact of a theme, can't you, I guess, as well? Yes and no. You're absolutely right. It is important to make sure that there is an in-depth analysis on the structural growth drivers that might push these themes forward. Technology, as I said, is an incredibly broad theme. But if we take cybersecurity, for example, again, it's been a topic that's been around for a while. But in an environment where all of a sudden companies have to grapple with a workforce that is 100% remote, the pressure on technology and security in that environment has skyrocketed to a level that we have to assume that this is an evolving theme where we obviously know, and this is the interesting one about cybersecurity, your opponents normally are one step ahead of you. And as such, you know, you're never there. You never have the one solution that will keep you safe for the next 10 years. Likewise, huge acceleration, the logistics of e-commerce and how we, again, we have to think about in terms of ESG, because the social aspect really got a lot of scrutiny this year, but then simply again of the efficiency and the mechanics. Medical breakthroughs, 
the context, we've had huge learnings around the lack of international engagement, the understanding that this might not have been the last pandemic. So there's a lot we can take away and think about how we can embed this in our investment thinking and make sure that we can capture this for our clients. Because I think what is clear as well, if you look for growth areas that can outgrow your normal GDP trajectory, you have to make sure we, you understand really what you're looking for. I suppose thinking about what clients are asking for. So clients are asking more questions about stewardship and ESG, of course. What sort of trends have you seen in terms of client demand for, I guess, any of the sorts of products that you run? There is clearly two big areas of interest for our clients. First and foremost, ESG. Climate is the dominant topic. And I think this is very much linked to what we have seen now in the UK, that pension funds will now have to think far more explicitly about climate risks, how they measure them, are they aware of the problem statement, and what are they doing about it. So that's an area which I believe will be even accelerating in 2021. But then we should not forget, likewise, it is the question around expected market returns, and in particular for government bonds and credit. The journey has been so strong for the whole fixed income complex you have to ask the question whether this is the floor. Have we reached the bottom? And if so, what is the trajectory going forward? Because it's very clear that we will not see the repetition of the returns we've seen in bond markets that we have had over the past 10 years. And as such, it is a question around your risk budget. If you model now for even modest, if 5.76% is a modest return expectation, you would be surprised what a model gives you these days. The equity proportion has to be much higher because we have to assume that the bond complex will not deliver the same return. Likewise, diversification. Will you receive the same diversification benefits from your bond allocation? And again, these are big questions that we are trying to answer. There has been a big push towards alternatives real assets, private credit, because we're looking for asset classes that might have similar characteristics and might work as bond proxies in that context. And so it's these two topics that really dominate the questions that we get from clients and allowing them to understand how we can bring them together, i.e. how can we actually address climate while at the same time aiming to achieve their return targets. In terms of the conversations you've had with clients, how have those gone over 2020, I guess? I mean, it's clients have clearly seen some pretty negative returns at certain points, very positive returns at other points. How might you reflect on the communications you've had with clients and what they've asked for and what they've wanted? I think in one sentence, it's been broadly positive. We have been able not only to communicate very regularly, particularly through the very difficult months and weeks in March, and I think that helped to guide them through the most difficult period. We actually have seen some action then on the back of the dislocations in March. Some clients were able to reallocate and actually buy into riskier assets where we've seen the most dramatic downdrafts. So obviously, hence then those that followed our changes in views, I think actually have done quite well on the back of this. And we've been able to capture quite a lot of the dislocations across our funds. I'm a very happy CIO at the end of 2020, and hence our client conversations have been quite positive. Big question marks now over 2021 and where we're going. Big focus on the US election, obviously. We have had, obviously, our fair share of political headlines as well and trying to make sense of this. But obviously, from where we are now, we're broadly 
moderately optimistic that 2021 can be quite a good year for risk assets. As a CIO, actually, do you try and form a set of macro views that you're putting out there to clients? Or do you sort of let those come a bit more bottom up from your teams, that sort of way? No, I'm trying to let the team do this because I'm not personally managing the assets. I'm part of the research process. I believe we have such a strong team in place that if we can bring those great minds together to analyze the views and articulate a set of views that we think are plausible, then I think that's really the best way forward. And I'm obviously, I write the forward to our CIO outlook and I'm part of the discussion. But I think to empower the team and make sure that the brightest minds have a word in there and have a say, I think is the best way forward. Fantastic. We've sort of reflected on recent years and we've talked about this year, next year. I wondered if you could cast your mind forward. I don't really mind how many, so, you know, 20, 30 years time based on some of the structural trends we've already discussed and based on how you see the asset management industry developing. What do you think we might see at that sort of point in time? If I think about what will be the determining factors, it has to be to a large extent policy making. If you think about the dramatic shift and influence of central bank policy over the past 10 years, I have to assume that this will be a decisive factor over the next 10, 20 years. Likewise, Everything we've just talked about with regards to ESG and particularly climate transition, because if we're right in our assessment that financial materiality is not accurately captured yet in markets, I have to assume that there will be a real diverse environment for relative winners and losers, because that topic with greater data availability, greater understanding of the necessary changes there will be huge changes in markets and that's a huge opportunity, but it's a risk as well. So in combination then with where we are in terms of interest rates and bond yields, that's quite an incredible mix if you think about it. I believe that for the asset management industry to bring this all together, scale will matter. There will be a requirement for asset managers to establish a far broader holistic solutions mindset that you have an investment team that is capable of capturing a client question and really have a solutions mindset addressing this. And the answer can be a straightforward product proposition, but the answer might well be a far more complex asset allocation consideration for the client. And if you can get there, I believe the client experience will be the other driving force. Because if you think about the way asset managers are set up, then in a way, investment excellence has been the driving force until now. It's been all about performance, the performance, the propositions you put forward. I think going forward, this will be part of the equation, but the client experience probably will be a much more important feature in the future and how companies can differentiate the client experience alongside investment excellence, I think will be a big ingredient in successful asset managers of the future. So that's for me the, the areas to watch out for, which will really shape and determine the industry for the next 10, 20, even 30 years. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, when you're talking about client experience there, presumably you're talking a little bit about sort of different ways of communicating with clients and getting the message across. Dare I say podcasts being a part of that <laughs> potentially? Do you, do you see that? Yeah, absolutely right. How do we engage with our clients? How do we allow them to be part of that conversation without sending a fact sheet? Let's face it, the industry has not been particularly innovative in the way we communicate with our clients. 
find particularly interesting, given that we obviously employ lots of very intelligent people who looked at other industries and how they have done it. And we have happily assumed that we can get away with not doing a lot of this. But I think there will be dramatic shifts. The idea of self-indexation, the more personal approach to how we engage with clients, I believe, will real disruptive force in this. And I suppose part of the sort of client experience, and, and I guess part of the bigger context of the question around DSG us as consultants and you as asset managers really looking internally so I guess it's an element of practice what you preach so we're telling our clients it's a good idea to take into account ESG factors which includes things like diversity which includes corporate responsibility which includes all of that whole sort of thing and actually if we're then presenting as a board full of men (laughs) full of people who look and sound exactly the same and think exactly the same most importantly then actually that's not going to be a positive client experience. No, absolutely. It is about walk the walk. If you want positive change, you have to start with yourself. I'm really pleased looking at at Elgin, how serious we take this and how successful we've been to make sure that this is embedded. But it's absolutely true. You can't hold a company board accountable if they turn around and say, but how about yours? I guess that brings us on to the subject of culture, really. So, I mean, how would you reflect on cultural changes in the investing in the city, if you like, in the investing world of London over the last couple of decades? What, what would you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, where to start? I actually came to the UK in 2005. So my experience prior to 2005 has been in Germany, but probably relatively similar. We've come a long way. You can't describe it any other way. Are we there yet? No, definitely not. There has been a lot of change internally, but what seems to resist and is quite stubborn is the perception. You know, if you speak to younger people, I still think there is a stubborn perception that this is still a male-dominant, very quantitative industry. And I think for me, there is so much change, but so much positive change in a way. If you think about the ESG and the purpose that comes with it, I think we have a real opportunity here to let young people know what a fabulous environment is that you can enter. It's so versatile. It's so interesting. It's obviously changing on a daily basis. And you now add a purpose to it, which I believe will resonate with a much broader base of young people and people in general that I would hope that we can change a little bit the perception of investing. We know how important it is. The the idea of private wealth creation is so important and will be even more important in the future. If we can make this a means to an end, not only to increase your private wealth, but have a positive impact on societal issues, I think is a tremendous combination that I would hope will really help with our ambition on diversity and inclusion and make this slight acceleration for our journey. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I was listening to a presentation the other day and they were making the point that so many kind of high profile figures in investing are just not relatable to younger people and to younger women in particular. And you can see how popular the odd social media account that is run by younger people or younger women about investing is because they're just sort of dying for those role models that they can relate to in in that sort of way. And I find it funny that in one sense, the asset management industry is always saying, well, how do we relate more to younger people? And then I often see people sort of almost mocking some of the things that younger people are doing with their money, like Robin Hood investing, for example, you can debate the pros and cons of that. I do think you probably shouldn't just mock it because it might be helpful to understand why people are using it and what they want out of it, what they're getting from it, more importantly, they're not getting from conventional asset managers. Absolutely. And I hope we can get to a point as well where 
investing becomes more attractive to a broader range within the population because it is so important and we know it. Private wealth creation is just such an important aspect. And if we can make this more accessible because there is a stronger purpose attached to it, I would hope we will see a dramatic increase in the level of interest, not only, as I said, in terms of attracting the talent, the diverse talent to the industry, but obviously allowing for a broader rollout of investment and and make this more accessible. And wouldn't that be an amazing trend to look back on in 20 years time, along with the other themes that you mentioned? It would. would. Yes, yes. So, Sonia, as we start to wrap up, we always ask our guests this question. What one thing do you want listeners to take away from this episode? The one thing would be to... The second look at the investment industry, how much is changing and how great changes are currently underway. What a great place to work it is. Nice. Sonia, what would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing? The fact that it is not just about numbers. Analytics are still a big part of it, but it's not just about numbers. And I think that has increasingly changed over the past couple of years. To me, this is a big part of why I love my job, because it is so incredibly interesting. It is complex, it's challenging, but it's so intellectually stimulating that I feel it is underappreciated because people still think it's just your spreadsheet and a bunch of numbers. I love that. I think we've been recording, I think we've got well over 30 episodes and I've never heard that one. So yeah, that's fantastic. Sonia, final question from me. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that? I'm a little bit biased because obviously I'm a big fan of our Elgin podcast. I would highly recommend these, but they are a broad range of great topics and obviously will cover quite a lot of what we have covered today. I think in terms of books, one that I read and liked a lot is Michelle Obama's biography, which is just a fabulous and very timely way to look at America. Brilliant. Well, we'll put links to those in the show notes. Sorry, I broke my own personal rule there. My personal peeve with podcast hosts is podcast hosts who ask a question that's basically a monologue making their own point and I did that at least twice there it was really annoying <laughs> like I hate listening to it when they do it it's like just ask the question let them answer it <laughs> so, apologies for that well Sonia it's been a great conversation today thank you so much for your time thank you so much for having me Sonia it's been an absolute pleasure that's all we've got time for this week on investment uncut please join us again next week for another episode take care Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.